Oh my god, what am I doing? Hello, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. I have another super interesting guest to have you guys hear about and learn from today. His name is Wilfred Wiley. I think, sorry, Riley. I think I, um, I found out about him through Thaddeus Russell. I watched an interview of his some time ago. I thought he was really, really funny. <laughs> That's what I remember the most from the from the interview, apart from you know his intellect and what he had to say about the world, just the way he uh, espoused his positions. And I've been following him, following him on Twitter ever since. I see his posts a lot on things that I care about, which is how data is used to inform society in a way that I think is very manipulative because it, it sort of lies by omission most often. I think that's what I see uh, most often. And, and he really understands that data in a way that a lot of people don't. He calls himself a quant. I will let him introduce himself. He wrote a book called Hate Crime Hoax and he is a professor at K Kentucky State University. And I'm really excited to have a conversation with him. I'm really glad that he responded to my message to agree to come and do this interview. So hi, Wilfred. Thank you so much for being on the show. I think my audience is going to really like hearing from you. And if you could start by just introducing yourself in your own words. Sure. And yeah, I'm glad to be on the platform. I mean, as you mentioned, we've interacted with each other a bunch of times on social media. I think we both got shouted out recently by the Free Black Thought platform for you know, minority, heterodox academics, a lot of libertarians on there. So uh, it's good to be talking to you in person. As you said, I'm Wilfred Riley. I'm known in kind of the public space primarily as the author of a couple of books, uh, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, which are kind of empirical looks at some of the racial claims in particular that are being made in the USA right now by the left and the hard right, uh, a lot of which I find to be utterly baseless. Um, and in terms of the background that allows me to say that, I'm a professor, an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, one of many great uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges in the USA. We're also located in the Appalachian region of the country. We're very close to it. So that, that's an interesting dynamic. That is a mostly white area that's long been the poorest region of the USA. So we get an interesting mix of students from there and around the country. And I teach, as I said, some of our courses in politics. We've also started up a minor in essentially espionage, although it's called something a little more broad. And I get to teach some of those classes as well, like cybersecurity and hacking, um, insurgency, radicalism, so on down the line. Uh, as read the quant part, I'm also one of our primary instructors for quantitative methods, essentially research methods 301, which is I'm not you know, the most brilliant methodologist in the world. I think I'm pretty solid in that sort of linear, logit, time series, et cetera space. So I can very often look at public data that you see in, for example, the newspapers, the journals, so on down the line, and uh, produce some critiques of it. But that's my background. I'm from Chicago originally. I'm a Capricorn. I enjoy basketball. Okay, that's a great rundown. <laughs> Nobody knows this, but I'm Sagittarius. That's just never come up on my channel before. But really? you're the first person to bring up, like, yeah, what their sign is. Like, I don't know why no one has ever really mentioned that. Um, not that it's that important, but I felt like I needed to respond when you said that. So, um, yeah, it is cool. <laughs> um, what made you start writing? I'm particularly interested in why you decided to write your books. Like, why did you think that this was, these were 
topics, um, you could mention what each book is about that you needed to get into and you decided to write a book about them? Well, I think the short answer is that I find that a lot of the very influential ideas in modern society, whether that is the idea that there's an epidemic of violence against black people on the left, or this idea that diverse multiracial societies don't generally work on the right, which has been false since Rome and you see that demonstrated in the island states and so on today. I mean, many of these ideas have no basis in reality. Um, they come out of that zone of sort of qualitative philosophy. They find an audience that enjoys them, that thinks they make sense. And so you get a great deal of almost hysterics in a space where there's not much going on. I mean, the thing that pushed me to recognize this more broadly was uh, I was arguing with one of my boys, is how I'd phrase it. We were actually in a barbershop and we were talking about how many black men and poor white men are shot by police. Um, and I said, if you're talking about unarmed guys, it's got to be, you know, under 200. It's got to be a very small number. And he thought it was substantially higher and was, was using math, was saying, well, there are 350 million Americans, there are 25 million police stops each year. I mean, it, it has to be in the thousands. I mean, in Britain, they don't use guns and they kill, you know, X number of people. And I actually just went to the database Killed by Police, which is set up by kind of left-leaning but very skilled quants, www.killedbypolice.net. It's been online for years before the WAPO. And I looked up the number of unarmed black men for that year. And if we're talking at 2015, I believe it was 12. I mean, whites, it uh, was 50. You know, and obviously there are people that are shot by police while they're attempting to shoot a police officer or something like that. But that that just sort of made the point. A lot of these things that we fear aren't really real. And I guess in terms of like who influenced your music kind of question, uh, Barry Glasner, the sociologist at, I believe, UCLA, wrote a book in 1999 called The Culture of Fear. And he did this not in terms of political phenomena, because, again, he's a social guy, but just the things that terrified people. And I got the impression, without intending to criticize him, that he had sort of an upper middle class wife that was very worried about some of this. Because he looks <laughs> at like young child kidnapping and then like teen sex and then like plane crashes and, you know, all the all the stuff that, you know, a dad in the suburbs would worry about. But like one of the lines from his book is that he's one of the first people to point out that there were there are only about 150 to 200 kids that are actually kidnapped in a typical year. Uh, as in taken from home by someone other than like the estranged father who's going to do a good job at them, like an actual pedophile or something like that, and kept for more than a week. The reason that this became such a source of panic for people, and especially perhaps for women, for female Americans in the late 90s, was that you had a television fight between Fox sort of beginning TNT to attract viewers to this new space cable. And one of the things that they found was that people would watch any program where they talked about a young girl being stolen away. And that this is also the period of time that produced Amber Alerts and all this kind of thing. So this became constant in the news, but in fact, almost no kids were being kidnapped. There'd been a decrease in kids being kidnapped since the violent, turbulent 60s with the race riots and the growth of drugs and so on. And the same thing with all this other stuff. I mean, for plane crashes, the, the total number of people killed of American or British origin in plane wrecks in a typical year is, I might be a little off on this, but about 50 animal attacks. He literally goes through all of this stuff. What are your chances as a heterosexual, white or black man of dying of AIDS? I mean, they are not high. I remember that terrifying me in high school, actually. Um, 
In the urban USA, there is an incredible focus on this idea that there's going to be what was called the heterosexual AIDS epidemic. We're all going to die of AIDS. And I remember as a young male, somewhat absurdly, I didn't stop, you know, hooking up with people, but I worried about all this other crap, like, what about mosquitoes? Could they give me this disease? And Glaster makes this point that, you know, there are very specific hard drug users, for example, among heterosexual men, groups that are likely to die of HIV, your odds outside of them are extremely small. Anyway, I, inspired by that, was very interested in the same thing today. So the book Taboo looks at sort of 10 of these things that you're not supposed to talk about really in dinner party conversation, but that are kind of influential, where people assume the baseline, as we would say. So, I mean, one is, um, is there a massive conflict between people of African descent in the USA and cops? Are there, as BLM has said in the past, thousands of brothers killed in a typical year? Uh, chapter two is, is there a great deal of interracial crime in the first place? We see that we see this again on both left and right, where on the one hand, you have these constant stories about pool party, Paula, you know, coupon, Carl, you know, pool patrol, Pete, all these people that seem to be fist fighting with black people at the slightest provocation. And then on sort of the alternative right, you have sites with names like white girl bleed a lot that literally add up all of the black crimes in a state or a region against white people in a typical year. So I looked at how much uh, interracial crime there actually was. And the book goes on with some of this stuff. Empirically, do we find that there's extraordinary white privilege if you adjust for social class? And this idea of adjusting for things is something I'll come back to. But, you know, do we find that immigration can be managed? Are there certain groups that tend to do better, not along racial lines, but professionals and so on, in their new country than others? So the whole book looks empirically at these broad statements like, no human is illegal, and tries to figure out what the actual reality is. And I mean, just very quickly on the interracial crime one, that again is an area where I was kind of shocked. Um, Interracial violent crime between blacks and whites, being kind of specific, there's about 3% of crime. So in a typical year, there are about 20 million crimes. You can find this by Googling what's called the BJS report, the Beru of Justice Statistics report for that year. 2019, I believe, just came out, just dropped. And in a typical year, there are about 20 million of what I'd consider real serious crimes, not misdemeanor weed charges and the like. But, I mean, either the most severe property crimes like burglary with someone in the house or violent crimes. Um, so out of those 20 million crimes, in the most recent year on record, there were about 600,000 crimes that were violent and that had either a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim. So that's that's three to four percent of crime. The even more taboo portion of this, by the way, is that we, quote unquote, were responsible for about 80 percent of that. So there is much more black on white crime than white on black crime. Um, the media never discusses this, but I mean, even that I don't think is an extraordinarily important point because again, you get back to 3% of crime. If you look strictly at violent felony assaults, I believe 15% of those against whites were committed by black people and black people make up 14% of the US population. And in reverse, it was pretty much the same. 11 to 12% of these assaults on black people were committed by white people. Again, we had the higher rate of this, and there's no reason to deny that. But the person most likely to kill you is your ex-white. So again, there's the distinction between reality and fear. Fear is, I, I think, 10 fighting men from the other race will jump out of a van and do me in. 
And I mean, the, the reality is, you know, are you throwing raves or something? If not, the odds of that happening are, are, are you in the mafia? The odds of that happening as an ordinary dentist or something are extraordinarily low. What's going to kill you is, you know, an unsatisfied spouse or the cholesterol in your diet. So the book is funnier than that. I don't devote a lot of time to the cholesterol in your diet. But we do point out some of these things. Um, and th this is this is accompanied by more. So a final comment. But like the third chapter of the book goes beyond some of the flamboyant stuff I'm talking about and just makes the obvious point that before we can talk about systemic racism or something like this, levels of discrimination, we have to adjust for the other ways in which people differ from one another. So, I mean, for example, if you're looking at income, you can't just say, well, there's a gap between blacks and whites. That's due to racism. I mean, the obvious question would be, are blacks and whites on average the same age? Well, no. It turns out the most common age for white people is 58. The most common age for black people is 27. That's only the modal average. That 30-year gap shrinks by about half if you look at a mean or a median. But still, if you're talking 20-year gaps between individuals, the person that's 50 is going to have more money than the person that's 30. Um, African-Americans are more likely to live in the South where wages are lower. Test scores are a big part of this. I mean, here you can, I suppose, claim there's a class effect on the scores. But the average SAT for a black person or a native person, many Hispanic groups, is around a 950. Uh, whites do a bit better, uh, 1050 to 1100, typical year. Asians kick everybody's ass with roughly a 1200. I mean, it was an 1181 the most recent year I looked, which is, I believe, 2017. So it doesn't necessarily make sense offhand to assume that if Asians make more money than whites and whites make more money than blacks and blacks make more money than Latinos, all of which is true, the reason for that is that there's some sort of weird staggered pattern of racism where the government prefers Asians to whites to blacks to Mexican-Americans. It might be a lot more productive to look at where people live and how old they are and how they're doing on the standardized boards. So that that is the book. It's sort of looking at the things that people often say that are rarely challenged. The other one looks at uh, hate crime hoaxes, which was an entertaining topic to write about. But again, are, are Jussie Smollett and these things that we hear as evidence of racial violence, did they even happen? Juicy Smollett, yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to say no, but uh, I only know about Jussie Smollett. I don't really know about, like, it's not something I've researched. I did want to respond to a couple of the things you said. Um, so I'm from Jamaica. I came, you probably don't know this, and I came uh, to the U.S. 2010 for college. So I've been here for a while. And I didn't care and I didn't need to about politics until like 2016, I think when like Trump uh, came about. So I never like, none of these things were really issues for me. Um, when I was in college, the first time I noticed anything was when the Trayvon Martin incident happened because there were some people who I was like casual friends with who were, well, I would call them black Americans, but they'd probably call themselves, call themselves African Americans. And so like... They were like doing protests and stuff like that, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really pay that much attention. <laughs> and um, then uh, after I, I left college, I kept encountering people. Um, and I was in up, upstate New York. So I was around a lot of like white folks upstate. And I, um, and then because I went to a super liberal college uh, also, um, so I was. You know, I guess I was around progressive people, but I didn't know that. Like, I didn't have the term progressive or okay. like that. It just wasn't in my head. Um, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
when I started hearing all these narratives about race, etc., the first thing I did, I studied biology. Um, it's like, go look, go look at the data. So that, that is one of the things that I did. And um, I, <laughs> I made this video about how much I don't like Black Lives Matter, um, not because of uh, like narratives in terms of the hands up, don't shoot, that kind of stuff not being true. But if you're looking at, it's like they were like, inflating a very small issue from when I, I looked at the data. So it's exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And then I also discovered Thomas Sowell around the same time. Um, oh, I, I kind of skipped over this. So the reason I started even thinking about this stuff is because I met people who would just like expect me to think a certain way. This is both black and white Americans just because of how I looked. And so I wasn't used to that. So that's, that is really like what drew me in because I was like, didn't like it. <laughs> I just really didn't like it. So just to uh, give you an idea of um, my background. Yeah. So that's just the first thing I wanted to like respond uh, to say in response to what you said was I instantly found out that a lot of what they were saying wasn't holding water. But I do think that I wouldn't have maybe maybe I would have been more susceptible to it if I was having like lots of negative experiences in the U.S., which according to them I should have been having, which I, I wasn't. So I immediately was like, this doesn't make sense. And then I looked more and I mean, it's, it's held pretty constant uh, so far. So I, of course, I believe that there are racist people, etc. like whatever. But uh, every time you look, it's like not, they're not giving the whole, giving the whole truth, it seems. Um, so other than that, I, I also wanted to say um, that I think it's helpful to look at the media as the selling fair, like that's the, the product. Maybe it's not the only product, but it becomes the, it seems to have become the main product um, just because of human nature. You know, like it's, it's almost like it's like tapping into our biology and the kind of environment we really um, evolved in, which is like you had to be on the alert for danger. So I, I guess I just, I wanted to respond with those things. If you wanted to respond to anything I just said, then go ahead. Yeah, no. So one thing you said there that's actually really interesting. So you went to a pretty typical American college. I mean, left wing, but in kind of upstate New York, majority Caucasian. Did you experience a lot of what you considered intense racism? Like, did you find that a difficult environment to live in? Not at all. <laughs> like, completely not. I mean, like, it, it honestly, didn't really cross my mind. So, like, I'm from Jamaica. So obviously there's like the whole history of the slave trade that you learn about and about racism. There's like post-colonial racism. Also, there's like a, some like colorism in the history. Like, so, you know, all of that stuff. It's not like you're, it's not as if you don't also like America get that history of like colonialism and people being racist, like that's there. But it, it, it seems very different here where it's like transposed onto like, who you are in the present. Um, I, I probably interacted with people who had racist opinions. I've always said that, but I don't particularly care. care. That's also something I, I've noticed about America is like people really, 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 really care like what's going on inside people's heads. Whereas to me, I think that doesn't matter. I, I think it matters like if I can be like denied a job, like that 
is important to me. I don't care. And I was never raised to care if like someone didn't like me because of my skin color. Like that's to me, that's not important. Whereas like hair, like it's like you're, you're made to be like very, very sensitive. I think it's not good uh, over um, people possibly like having some racist attitude um, uh, towards you. And this people who watch my channel would know this, but the first time that I, I felt like bad and actually no, I have a I have more compassion now than I did at the time um, was someone I was working uh, as an EMT. And so that's like a, in New York City, so in Queens. So after college, I went to live with my aunt in, uh, in the city. Okay. And, and I did that for two years. And um, I, I, one of the first jobs I got, because it was just like I had the qualifications and I was just, it was like a stepping stone to something else, was as an EMT. And it's a very like low-wage job. So I met uh, some Black Americans who like we're not coming from the best place. I mean, I didn't really realize it at the time and I took what they said personally, but I had a conversation with someone. Um, I mean, it was, he's the one that like said something to me. There were like, I interacted with other people too. And he told me that I was like up with the slave owners because I was just introducing myself and like saying what my background was from. Like he legitimately said that to me and that I talked to proper. And he was like kind of like scorning me as a routine, Jimmy. And, I, and I, I was like, that was my first like upfront, based on my race, like negative experience. Not yeah. my four years uh, in college. Again, I have much more compassion than I did when it, when it actually occurred. Um, but I mean, that kind of sums up my, my uh, I guess, experience in the US is that I was probably, and I'm probably, and you know, meet people who like have racist thoughts, but like, I would never think of it except for like people trying to tell me to think of it because it doesn't yeah. you know, impact. Yeah. So I think that answers extensively uh, your question. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. I, I feel pretty much the same way, by the way. And one thing, this actually gets into something we look at in terms of the numbers in political science. I mean, there are a ton of successful black countries and people that come to the USA from Nigeria, Jamaica, you know, Bermuda, Barbados, Ghana, South Africa. I mean, Brazil is essentially a black state in our terms, although they fight about this radically. I'm not sure whether I'd be black or white in Brazil right now, depending on the politics. But I mean, people that come to the USA from these places all do as well as or better than white Americans on average. You can go to Wikipedia or Britannica and see the list of, it's called ethnic groups by income. And whites do quite well as well. But I mean, if you look at British West Indians, the average income for Caucasians might be 65,000 or something. For West Indians, I think it's 64. Nigerians, it's 74, that sort of thing. So that's one of the things that kind of complicates the systemic racism debate. Um, so when people say there is all this hidden racism out there, what else could explain, again, these gaps between blacks and whites in terms of the test scores or crime rate, there's still a difference, that sort of thing. The, the usual default answer is racism, but then you have to ask, well, why do Nigerians and you know Indian Dravins, brown or black skinned people from the southern part of the country, Jamaicans, why are all these groups doing better than white people? And I've never really heard a coherent answer to that. It's always the same sort of bullshit like, well, they think like the slave masters because they were lords back home. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, maybe if that's thinking that way means doing your math homework, everybody ought to start doing it. I, mean, I don't think they have any slaves in the Nigerian American community. You know, like, what, what are you talking about? But but so that is that is a real fact that 
I mean, my own impression is that it's not entirely a fair comparison because in Brazil or Nigeria, you're talking about a G30 country that has black leadership. So, I mean, all of the leaders that come from that state will be black. I mean, I think in the USA, there obviously was, you know, oppression of black people. And that caught, now this is the part that's difficult for a lot of American, quote unquote, brothers and sisters, that caused problems. That resulted in more black people living in poverty housing. And if you want to live in a better neighborhood, you have to move and live around you know, other people. That caused the higher crime rate that we see, so on. So it's not just that white racism today is causing these issues. It's that past conflict, which among our racial groups almost reached the level of war, did with the Native American Indians, caused things like, for example, a higher crime rate or different attitude towards school in the black community. But now black people from other societies and Asians as well, so on, seem to be coming here and doing as well as anybody else. So the question has to be changed from how do we fight racism, I think, to, you know, how do we deal with these problems that may have been 30 or 40 percent caused by racism, but 70 years ago? And that's a much tougher conversation. A lot of my black American buddies really do, even at the level of higher education, prefer to deflect back to racism. Like, well, we haven't fought at all yet. There's still some today. But th this puts you in this weird zone where you're trying to attribute you know, that that gap in test scores that I mentioned of 100 plus points to 14 people every year that are killed in encounters with the police. And I think I think a lot of well-intentioned Caucasian guys know that that's nonsense and just feel kind of awkward saying it. So you get into this weird space where two smart people are often talking past each other. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. On average, people from, you know, the Black Island states, people from the rising African states, Ethiopia, do quite well in the USA. And I, I don't think it's really coherent to argue, yeah, well, a white racist hates black Americans, but they love Ethiopians. You know, I mean, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. Um, so when one thing that also that ties into that is that in the American black community, there's this sort of, at least in my experience, there's this idea of being kind of down with us. A big element of being black is understanding that these problems are due to racism questioning that. I mean, I'm still quite popular with my black friends, but I mean, there's there's some hostility there. Like, are you an Uncle Tom now? Questioning that causes anger. So, I mean, like an experiment that I do when I teach a methods class um, is ask the students in the class at the start of it, you know, how many negative experiences would you say you have in a typical week with other people? You know, arguments, road rage, possibly at the extremes, you know, fist fight in the club, a confrontation with someone domestic. How many negative negative encounters would you say you have? And the people say black and white students say about the same number. These are mostly working middle class kids from, again, urban Kentucky, not especially easy or extraordinarily hard lives. The difference is that when you ask them what they attribute this to, the black kids will invariably attribute about half of them to racism. And when their Appalachian white friends will challenge them and say, well, we have the exact same number, there's not, there's again, not really an answer. It's generally just a jo half friendly joke, like, well, you know, y'all some hillbillies or something like that. Like, you must have a different set of problems. I'm not sure that would be the language used, but yours must be due to class. The reality is that the, they're the exact same number of issues for the exact same reason. I think that black Americans have become very, very used, even as the old wars have faded away, to saying that a lot of that is due to racism. I'm not I'm not sure that's entirely true. As you said, of course, there are racists out there. I think the oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, um, I don't think it's true. I was just uh, having a conversation with people recently and I was explaining to them how 
because I'm from Jamaica and I came straight from Jamaica and I don't didn't have any of these ideas in my in my head. I I have like a, another experience to compare it to in terms of how much how much positive or negative experiences I'm having, um, which is which makes it very hard for me to believe a lot of what people say because I always have a different perspective of knowing that certain issues like even police brutality like that exists in Jamaica you just don't blame it on the racial the racial element. So I I think having that that other perspective um really makes a difference in, in how you at least for me made a difference um in like not being able to to see what to take the narrative of like the mainstream media or blm um as gospel because i would have experienced that and i would have known i would have known the difference pretty much immediately yeah, it, well, it's interesting. I think this also ties into the idea that only one thing is really bad. So, I mean, like, when you talk about in Jamaica, there's colorism or there are conflicts between people. Like, I went to school in the hood. My mom was an inner city school teacher. My mom herself is an upper class black woman, like, hilarious person. But she taught in, I was born on the south side of Chicago. We moved to the east side of Aurora, which is Illinois' second largest city. And that, interestingly, is a traditionally Hispanic and poor white area. So um, I think one of the things that shaped my perspective a bit, like when you mentioned growing up kind of outside the American norm, like you were literally in another well-known country. Uh, so there's a different perspective there. When you come to America, um, you know, you're not going to see things in the same way. I had somewhat similar experiences in that my mom had a full-on formal educational background but I grew up in mostly poor areas where she taught, and a lot of them were, frankly, white and Hispanic slums. So I spent some time in Bridgeport in Chicago. I lived on the east side of Aurora. I lived in a trailer park for a while when I was going to college. And I didn't notice that the police there were caring and wonderful to young men they stopped either. So, I mean, that, that growing up outside sort of the middle class minority mainstream had a pretty significant impact. And that was combined with not being in kind of the normal formal educational system. Like I just went to school in the hood. I read books I bought at the thrift shop. I found out later that some of them, uh, one of them was, well, a book I liked was written by Haki Mod Booty from Third World Press and was considered to be black radical. Another one was written by Jared Taylor and was considered to be alt-right. I read Thomas Sowell very early on. And I think my question, not knowing that some of these things were supposed to be forbidden, was just, do they make sense? And I've always been pretty thankful for that. So at the most basic level, a lot of what woke upper class people say in university seems just facially obvious. I mean, if, or facially obviously false. So, I mean, if you go to Chicago and you see you know, a young working class guy with, you know, the Irish cloverleaf or the Mexican flag tattooed on his neck, you know, rocking a hoodie walking down the street, he's not going to have dramatically different encounters with the police than a young African-American guy would. The idea that that first guy has some extraordinary level of privilege <laughs> seems kind of nonsensical. But I think the reason that both of us have, st have looked at this from kind of, a, you know, a scholarly sort of stochastic, that doesn't match my experience perspective, is that we come from sort of outside the bubble that you see a lot of in the USA. Uh, if you read American mass media, it's astonishing how much of it reflects basically one perspective, which is uh, urban. There are about four or five big cities that feed into our mass media. My own Chicago, which has you know 12 million people, is the smallest of them, probably. Um, it is upper class. 
almost universally. I mean, you'll meet people that go to the same 12 Ivy or Big Ten universities at parties and events. Many of them went to the, the better known prep schools before that. Uh, it's heavily coastal, the, the ocean shores or the Great Lakes. Um, it's actually fairly diverse, but it's mostly white, so on down the line. So there's a set for a oh, liberal, I forgot. I mean, uh, it, high, high G conservatives tend to go into business in the military. So when you get into discourse, academia, and so on, it's often 70, 80 percent left. So you have this one viewpoint that you see coming out of the pages of a lot of periodicals and from CNN, MSNBC, most of the media you'd watch if you're just in an airport on business or something. And I think that people who come from, and one of the reasons there's such a focus on race or even things like personal bisexuality within this envelope, I think, is that there's not much else that distinguishes people. Very few of the people that I'm describing in the current academic or media elite are from the hood. Uh, very few of them are from poor white areas. That's why Hillbilly Elegy became an international bestseller. Someone just told of a very common experience, but it was the first time many people had heard it. Um, not not many of them are first or second generation immigrants, really. I mean, on a per capita basis. Again, that group tends to go into business, make money. So what, what separates people? I mean, you find race and sexuality. There are very few differences of class or even of something like fitness. And that's, that's why there's this obsessive focus on those two things among what are in general a bunch of rich people. But I mean, so kind of getting to the point, like, yeah, because my mom was an inner city teacher and because I spent some time traveling overseas and so on, I do think I had a different set of experiences. And part of that involved not being told that certain things were forbidden. So one of the things about that group that I'm mentioning, in my experience about everything from discussing race to sexuality, actually, um, there are a bunch of sort of upper middle class limits, things you're not supposed to talk about, things that are rude, so on. And when I started reading, I wasn't really aware of those to some extent. So, I mean, I mentioned I'm a black guy, I read a lot of the books from Third World Press. And my impression was, well, these brothers are a little bit racist, but they're making some good points. Why don't we start businesses? I mean, I read some of the books by people like Peter Brimelow, that later be Pat Buchanan, that later became completely unpersoned as members of the quote-unquote alt-right if you look at social media and again the response I actually don't was, well, know who, I sorry I, just, I don't know who those people are just, oh um just right-wing writers I mean Pat Buchanan ran for president back in 1992 but he also wrote um a series of books with titles like the death of the west where he asks questions like why are we admitting millions of immigrants each year from other great historic societies for example the arab world without doing the sort of assimilation that we used to, without almost mandating that, without a certain series of courses, in many cases, so on. And again, he struck me as a little bit racist, but still, the, the question from that politically incorrect perspective was, well, why the hell not? Why would a society admit millions of unvetted immigrants that might not like its members? So I think growing up, and it's, I've never heard a valid answer to that question either. So I think growing up outside that mainstream, growing up in immigrant communities, working class communities, so on, uh, other states, you know, even, even the U.S. heartland, I meant countries when I said states, but you bring a perspective to the table you don't often see among the small group of people that get to write for, say, the Atlantic. Um, Another element of this, and this is this is my last point, but like, I don't think a lot of people in the group I just mentioned understand that there are other forms of prejudice beyond those they're allowed to criticize. So like the high school I went to, East Aurora High School, I still like it, give to the Alumni Association, I had fun there. But I mean, was probably 70% uh, black and Latino. Um, so we were a mostly minority school. 
And like the main thing I got teased about other than being kind of geeky was looking white. Um, so it, everyone has this same low level of bigotry. Like I actually remember I had a good buddy named Marcus Jackson and he and I dated the same girl. We both ran track and for a while we both tried out for the basketball squad and we were both well enough liked, but we were nicknamed sunshine and midnight because I was too I was very light skinned. He was very dark skinned. So you would literally get jokes about that. Like, hey, sunshine, pass the ball to midnight. He's open. You know, it was just like, and we were both better at track. We, our school, I mean, we had 4,000 guys try out for the basketball team. Like the center of my senior year ended up going to the NBA. So I'm, I'm not saying I have any kind of great Hooper history. But I mean, it, just hearing that or hearing some of the things that crowds at other black schools or at poor white schools would say to your athletes. I mean, it, the reality is that most people aren't very politically correct. Whether that's in private, intimate relationships, let's say, or that's at sporting events, or that's at political rallies, people don't actually talk the way woke folks do ever. So I think being exposed to that just in a working class community, it kind of makes you realize that what's being said from people in these taste making roles isn't all that real. Like racism covers all races. A lot of what you think is prejudice isn't. And more to the point, like you guys are obsessing about these one or two things because you're all rich. You're all alike in every other way. And I, I think that is a key point. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I myself had the, I think have um, gone through the process of um, reading or discussing topics that are taboo, but I don't know that they are. So that definitely happened to me with Ikey stuff. Like I started talking about it on YouTube and like it's not just that just also the, the race stuff in the u.s and like you're not supposed to have certain opinions so i think it's extremely extremely telling that my mother like watches my channel she's in jamaica and i've received like zero pushback because she's not from like hair where she would think that oh you can't think this or you that you know and so I, I definitely think that, um, I mean, I, I like it because I, I am someone who's curious and likes to, likes to think a lot. And I also read or like people telling me what to do. So if somebody's like, oh, you can't talk about it. It's like, I'm like, who are you? Like, I can do what I want. I'm definitely like that. Um, but I, I think because I'm not from the U.S., I have engaged with a lot of topics to the point where they became boring to me. <laughs> um, that from a perspective that someone, if they were from here, I think just wouldn't have even touched because they might have been afraid um, to, to, to like upset their family members or their peers or to not get a job or, or stuff like that. And, and I mean, I like, I like it if it gives me a bit of a pass that I'm not from here because I don't want my mind restricted uh, in that way. And something else that you mentioned is the, the bigotry stuff that is in everybody um but somehow these people like you're mentioning um they're only used to their own community so they don't they don't see it so i had a conversation with uh, what you were saying just reminded me of it with a family member of mine a, a distant family member not immediate in the u.s who i was trying to explain to them that i consider jamaica a very not racist place so I mentioned the, the colorism thing, but I personally didn't experience that. That's just what I've known from like what people have told me about Jamaican society after like colonialism. Um, 
and I, <laughs> I also didn't actually see this, but I was talking to some my friends. I have two really good friends who are still kind of my best friends who are in who are, uh, well, one of them moved moved to the U.S. and then they he he and his girlfriend want to move back to Jamaica, but. We were, I was talking to them, and they were telling me about a teacher that we had who was Indian when I was growing up in high school. I didn't know that this happened. Like My friend just told me uh, like a year ago or something that he was being teased um, like for being Indian, like by Jamaican kids, you know, and it's like that's in Jamaica. So this is a story. I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, that's so sad. But I feel like in the U.S., People are like can't even conceive of that happening because they, they just don't tell those stories, you know. But but it's like yeah, people are mean <laughs> and they are bigoted, and it's in every group of everybody, not everybody as an individual, but you can find that everywhere you look. So if you're only focusing on one, um, that's why I said at the beginning it's like lying by by omission, and I think it's really bad because it distorts like like the reality of like how people are and it makes people not be willing to look look for certain possibly negative traits of human beings except where they're told to look by the media and like no it's everywhere you can contribute too like it's not just like out there you know yeah no i mean i, I think that that's that's one of those things that if you put political correctness aside is just really obvious i mean i was on facebook earlier today and there's this meme where the origin of the picture is that a Chinese aid worker went to, I think, Botswana and is working with kids. And the kids obviously like him, like they're smiling and hug his leg and so on. But some of them are also doing this like slant, they're slanting their eyes to make fun of the fact that this guy is Chinese. And it's, it's offensive. It's also funny at some level. But you understand that this is just, this is a human characteristic. And the headline of the meme is like, when you go to the developing world to try to help, but they clown you because they're racist. You know, and it's like... <laughs> That's a good headline, actually. Yeah, um, but it's... it's I'm a lot to laugh at now. It's funny. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's... Uh, bigotry is a constant of all people. When I did my uh, graduate dissertation, one of the questions I asked was, would you ever consider changing your race, your sex, your core characteristics? And most people said no. But I also, I gave a qualitative option of why not. And I found out that about one in 10 whites and about one in seven uh, black people, people of color are bigots. Like the reason given was like, I don't really like them. It wasn't wildly hostile. It was just, you know, those are my enemies, my opponents. I don't like them all that much. You know, next question. So I think that that finding that all people have a tendency toward bigotry and that if you ask um, black Americans or certainly Easterners, East Asians and so on, it might be a little higher than it is for whites. Um, I, I think that would only shock a certain sort of liberal. Like it would be you would be fine and you'd be accepted in either case, you know, but like I think you would take more crap as a white kid in a black school than a black kid in a white school. Again, like the the deter the key determinant wouldn't even be race. It would be. Can you play football? Like in both cases, there would be a bunch of things that would be far more influential than your race itself. How stereotypical are you? Like if you're the white kid, are you just a kid from that neighborhood that looks like everyone else? Or are you showing up in a pink Ralph Lauren polo button down? Are you what people perceive as the stereotypical opponent? But um, the, the problem with it being forbidden to talk about certain things is that it removes possible explanations from the pool. So when we were talking about IQ, for example, 
Um, I don't think these are genetic to a significant degree. In fact, if you look again at Nigerians, West Africans, but there are currently tested IQ differences between not just broad racial groups, but countries. So, I mean, for example, Eastern Europe, on average, um, Bosnia, these sort of fairly troubled countries, Chechnya, they would test 10 to 15 points below their fellow whites, frankly, in Western Europe. So when you look at things like the number of scientists that come out of that region, it's going to be kind of idiotic just to ignore that, that for whatever reason, poorer educational system, the influence of traditional religion, war in the country, diet, the scores here are 15 points below the scores here. Like you can't take that variable out of, you know, the explanatory pool and then try to figure out what's going on. And it's to some extent is the same thing in the USA. So first of all, like the refusal to talk about this often prevents good news from being known. Um, the most recent study I actually read of black versus white IQ was Dickens and Flynn, two famous authors in 2007. And they looked at the nine major US IQ tests. And what they found is that IQ has generally gone up and racial gaps have narrowed. So when they tested, well, you know, well before we've gotten rid of, we've totally equalized how people teach their kids or well before we've gotten rid of all racism, the average scores in kind of the young male, like 13, 14 demographic, were um, about 99 for whites, I believe 92, 93, if I'm remembering this correctly, for African-Americans. So there was nothing horrifying there. The reality was just there's this gap. It seems to be shrinking, but we've got to close it. And what are some ways we can do that? Charter education, maybe, or something. But if you just ignore that and then you say, well, there are a smaller number of black nuclear physicists, you're going to be in a weird situation where there's an obvious explanation for that. Most people that are smart enough to have a college degree know it. But no one's going to say it. So that, that's when you start ghost hunting for weird kinds of racism and so on. I, I think it's just a waste of time. I think you should be able to talk about pretty much anything. Yeah, I don't know. You probably don't know, but I made a video recently. Uh, it's titled 93% of um, STEM graduates, and this is in the U.S., are not black. And that was in response to um, the Wells Fargo CEO got in trouble because he was saying that, that they couldn't find any talent, talent. And like I, on Twitter, it was like, everyone was just, oh, you're racist, let's, let's boycott this company, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, has anybody tried to, you know, like look at whether or not what he's saying is true? And this is studies done from like some institution like the, the African-American something, something, something. So I, I mean, I was saying that I couldn't specifically answer the question because I needed more information. But I could get close to the question in a way that nobody who was reporting it, I think it was someone from NBC. <laughs> uh, I, 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 sometimes I, I, I just so disappointed in journalists. Like it's, it's like they, they, they're not really interested in like helping anyone. But um, yeah, I think that's a pretty important thing to know that if, if you're concerned about how well um, African-Americans in the US are doing, then like wouldn't you be interested in how much of them have certain skills? If you're, you don't look at the, what's happening at the end, you look at whether or not they can, you know, be qualified. So that's just, yeah, that, yeah, I, I feel, I feel a bit strongly about that because it's just like, just do your job. Like, I feel like if you just spent a little bit of time reporting, you can stop, you know, you can make a difference. People might be like, oh, well, maybe we need to wonder why, you know, there aren't as many black graduates and like, maybe they don't want to be studying those things there are 
just look look a bit further i think yeah no that, that's absolutely right i mean so one of the things i think is that you're giving journalists a little too much credit there not that they can't do good but like when people ask why do journalists sound dumb i mean i'm an occam's razor guy a default explanation would be because some of them are pretty dumb i mean to be a journalist you essentially a lot of people don't understand this. I want to make fun of my own profession first and then get into uh, journalism, but I mean, or one of my former professions. But I worked on a fairly sa famous sales floor, M. Evans International in Chicago on that LaSalle Street, Michigan Avenue junction for a while. And our focus was booking CEOs for very high-end business events. We also had a bunch of standard trading floors in the building. And when people hear that term stockbroker, trading floor guy, they think, well, maybe a little sketchy, but that guy must be almost an economist. They must know a whole lot about the market or they wouldn't be in that job. And the reality is not really. Like, these are basically just salespeople. I mean, you know, when I worked on high-end sales floors, you would get, for example, a phone book for a city like Chicago or Indianapolis, and you'd look up the zip codes by the dollar value of homes there, and you'd just start calling where there were a lot of doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for the guys that were specifically selling stocks, they didn't know much of anything about the market other than buy low, sell high. You know, it was just sort of, your your floor has clients you work with and you hear that Nike's going up. So you call the guy who's listed, call everyone who's listed as doctor in the phone book and you ask them if they have a broker and you ask if they'd be interested in making a move on Nike. So it, it's not that these people are economic geniuses. They're just guys in suits doing this for a living. And with journalists, similarly, a journalist is just someone with an undergrad degree in journalism. I don't I don't think many of them are necessarily I'm sure Jake Tapper probably is or Tucker Carlson on the other side. But the average guy who's like reporting from the sidelines of a football game and then from a political rally, I don't think they necessarily know the figures on black on black crime for a given year or whatever. But I think as scholars, it's absolutely important that we produce this information, we present it to them. And so I was interested enough in what you said to actually Although I say heterodox things, I'm pretty I'm pretty black. I'm wired into the black business community, albeit light skinned. Um, and so, like, I get messages from the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. I just opened this one. We must admit that blacks are vastly underrepresented among doctoral degree recipients in some disciplines. For example, African Americans earned only 1.8 percent of all doctorates awarded in physics to all U.S. citizens and permanent residents during you know block of years. I won't go through. Blacks earned 3% of all mathematics and statistics doctorates, 3.7% of all doctorates in computer science, and only 4.1% of all doctorates awarded in engineering. This is exactly what you're saying. In 2016, according to the National Science Foundation, 1660 doctorates were awarded in the fields of agricultural economics, fishing, fishery science, wildlife biology, geophysics, seismology, which I guess is earthquakes, Paleontology, ocean and marine sciences, astronomy, atomic physics, nuclear physics, plasma physics, general physics, logic, topology, neuropsychology, physical and biology, biological anthropology, applied linguistics, French, Italian, German, Latin American languages and literature, all European history and classic. Not one was earned by an African American, although some West Africans did make the list. I mean... Black Americans only make up around 12% of the country, and right now we're trailing, although, again, not by an extraordinary amount at this point, in terms of board scores, test performance. So if you've only got 5% of the people in a field, let's say, that are black, you're going to have 5% black engineers. So you can say, well, we need to help out lower-income schools or something like that, but just saying that companies right now should figure out a way to have a 50% POC engineering staff, that's just nonsense. I mean, there's no way you can do that without just totally shredding all your quals requirements. 
And personally, in terms of some of those things like seismology, I'd prefer the people doing that be really well qualified. Like, I want to know when the earthquake is coming. I want the plane to stay in the air. You know, I, lo I love my buddies, and they're mostly minorities. But, like, if you don't know how to fly planes, you need to stay your ass on the ground. Like, you can't, we can't have people that are not pilots in these roles. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I get a little upset about it because I hate the... The, the veil of compassion that is there and it's it's not real. So they're like trying to pretend that they care about an issue, but if you really care, you gotta be willing to look at the truth and you, you have to be willing to say, hey, maybe some group of people are not up to par in order to get them there. To, but if you're if you're always just like throwing throwing the answer, throwing out the answer of racism, 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 then it's like you're not actually helping. And I, I think that's what bothers me the most about this stuff is like pretending to help but not actually being interested. Like, it kind of drives me a little bit crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's so it's even beyond that, there's a very simple answer. I mean, now that black people have gotten to a solid point and Asians are outperforming whites, if you really want to help out people of color, you could give them your job, your land. No one's going to do this, of course. But I mean, if, if you're really saying, I feel extraordinary guilt about the past, if only there was something I could do to remedy this. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of Caucasian guys with very large houses. You know, I'm in the market, it, but it's just nobody's going to do that. So I think that what you often see, I think, in fact, a simple way to put this would be what you often see in these arenas of race and sexuality and so on is a lot of virtue signaling that ignores the reality of class. So like Nike will make a pair of shoes and I'm a sneakerhead, so I, I looked at them online, but that, are, that look like the rainbow flag or the trans flag or the black African flag, but they're made by slaves. I mean, it, it's there's this incredible dichotomy where... You know, are you going to, technically, my lawyers have instructed me to say, as I get more famous, they are made by sweatshop labor paid at a very low level of compensation that cannot be confirmed. Um, like in the Marvel movie where someone said, I don't have slaves, I have prisoners with jobs. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but like, this is real though. I mean, these, these large corporations... When you see something like a Black Lives Matter flag that's made in China, you can say, well, I get the point you're trying to make, but there's an inherent absurdity here. And I think as opposed to this kind of virtue signaling, it is very important to look at these situations and see what the issue is. I mean, if the issue with um, African-American elite performance is that we are very consistently performing 7 to, I think, 13 percent behind on the test, how do you fix that? You can't just start this nonsense where you say that all tests are racist and so on, because there are only two options there. Option one is that everyone pretends to believe this and nothing changes, which is, I think, what we're seeing. Option two is that we actually start hiring people for elite jobs without using testing, which would be horrible. I mean, we've seen that tried in, for example, China after the uh, Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, and the results are as predictably disastrous as you would expect. It turns out IQ tests do measure at least how, you, how you're capable of performing currently. I don't think they measure a genetic absolute. I've boosted my IQ 20 or 30 points training in law school. But I mean, how you do on the boards is probably a pretty good measure of how you're going to do in college. You know, all of these things are real. The crime stats come from victims, not from racist police. They really do reflect who has a higher crime rate. You know, the police shooting data, every department legally has to report. They can lose all funding if they don't. We know what those figures are. So when you see certain patterns across racial lines or regional lines, there's a north-south difference in many cases as big as the black-white difference, class lines. You have to acknowledge, well, this stuff is true. Now what do we do about it? Yeah. Um, 
that's I, a uh, I don't know. Say that again? Oh, I, I was kind of kidding, but I said, well, that's a tough question. I don't know. I mean, that, that really is the issue. When you look at schooling, for example, I mean, the two things that seem to predict how kids do in school are one, home environment. I mean, number of books, words you hear from your mother, like literally this deep level of learning that individuals and even whole peoples pick up over hundreds of years. And then level two, I mean, I guess you'd say smart teachers teaching real information for long hours in the classroom, and the schools can at least influence the second. But it's pretty hard to close some of these gaps. I mean, the thing that really seems to, if you look at, say, Irish IQ or something like that, is time. Yeah, actually, I, I, I was about to ask you to go into that next because um, the people who watch my channel know that I am willing to talk about IQ, which a lot of people are not. And I've, I know, like... Sawell has like a cultural perspective on it. I recently, I had Bo Weingard on and he was giving his perspective and I would love to hear you just, I mean, you, you just started a little bit, talk about your view because I've heard you say things that I never really knew before um, in terms of uh, like some of these gaps seem to be closed by number of hours studying or things like that that you, you don't really hear like from the, the cultural side of things. So if you could give like, hard numbers, if you remember them, that would be that would be good. Sure. There's an extraordinarily strong culturalist case for IQ. I mean, I've enjoyed debating Bo online a couple of times, but a lot of this really isn't debated. I mean, so just to give a couple of examples, the IQ of the entire world, at least the countries developed enough to take IQ tests, has increased by about 18 points since the middle of the last century. I.e., if you IQ tests are always normed at 100. But the questions used to produce that score vary in terms of levels of difficulty. We're now doing sort of matrix algebra on these tests, whereas the first IQ tests were things like you'd show someone combing their hair with no comb in their hand and ask what was missing. So if you gave a current IQ test that's normed at 100 to someone, a typical individual in 1950, the score that they would produce, and we've seen this when tester in, our tests are introduced for the first time in virgin environments and so on, would be about an 85. Uh, if you simply Google Flynn effect, you'll find a better explanation than I just gave, the exact same details and data. Um, it's largely, there's some discussion about whether this is quote unquote on G, but it's largely undisputed that global IQ has risen nearly 20 points. And there are very practical reasons for this, things that correlate highly with this result in serious studies in journals like intelligence, diet. Sorry, could I pause you? Um, yeah. Could you just explain what G is? And you, you mentioned it earlier, too. Yeah. I have an idea, but just... First of all, I, I'm not sure I take the G concept all that seriously. I can hear a whole bunch of psychologists in the background booing, you know. It, it is something that they take quite seriously. It's uh, something of a reified artifact. But G essentially is the idea that there's a general factor of intelligence. So if you take six or seven components of a good IQ test, like Ravens, if you take, say, a matrix component, a verbal component, a mathematics component, a shape placement component, the scores will all correlate about 80%. And the idea is that G is the thing that they correlate with. But this is when you start getting into voodoo, I think. Just like the psychologists think this about my discipline's definition of a war and so on. But I mean, essentially, a crude way of saying this would be that G measures the level of correlation between the subtests of a well-designed IQ test. Um, I've never calculated G myself, but there are a lot of practical questions about that. The, the first and most important would be that it is technically possible 
for all of the scores on each section of the IQ test to increase, as they have with, for example, Black or Irish Americans, but G not to increase, G to be stable. And I understand this to be because it's this correlationary metric. Um, so the real question with G, and I, I don't think I've done a very good job of defining G here, but I, I don't see too many good jobs of defining G. The, the real issue with G would be if you have a group of people, for example, Irish Americans, increase their intelligence from 77 at the time of World War I, their tested intelligence, to 102 today. And you have that done on a test where their scores improve on the mathematics section, the reading section, the matrix section, etc. It would be possible to claim that that increase was not on G. For example, you could test using some sort of alternative measure like a digit span test that's supposed to measure intelligence as well and say that while all these performance scores are going up, people are just learning more, their maximal potential intelligence hasn't increased. Or you could say that correlations between subtests haven't increased. So maximal potential intelligence has not increased. Um, again, I'm not sure of the utility of this idea. Uh, I Sorry, think we um, can I pause you just to yeah, yeah, clarify, totally. I guess. So the, the way I understood the term G was some way of measuring raw intelligence. Now, this is something I looked into years ago, so I, I haven't really looked at anything um, science-based since for a while, but I just thought of it as a raw intelligence as in um, like processing speed kind of versus any particular knowledge or I guess it's like intelligence you, that's there before it's like applied to something. And then I just wanted to, to clarify, you were saying um, that um, G might not change even though the outcomes on specific sub-tests sub of intelligence, a well-designed IQ test, um, that might change. But if G is just a measure of the correlation, so saying that when someone is, ah, this is something else I'm just remembering, when someone is intelligent in one area, they tend to be intelligent in other areas or perform well in other tests. So that's why the concept of G came up because it's like there's like a general intelligence that can then be applied to different fields. So um, how is it that G can remain the same if the only way you can measure it is by tests taken? It's not something that can be measured separately. It seemed like you were saying it's something that you, it's only like a correlation of the, the other tests or seeing that there is a correlation among the, the other tests. I don't know if yeah, that, that. that's just some of the problems that sites like alt-right origins will bring up when they talk about G or anti-racist science. Now, I view those as being on the far left, and I view a lot of people that talk about G a great deal as being on the right, so truth may lie in between. And again, I would encourage you to ask Bo or somebody to clarify some of the things I said. But my perspective is a pretty good quant from outside the field is that there are some issues with the G concept. You're right. Like, just at the most basic level, G is the idea of general intelligence. Um, the maximal potential intelligence that a person has. So the, the core idea of the whole G concept is that if you do factor analysis or vector analysis, getting into some old methods, you'll find that there's one factor that technically everything correlates with. So there's an 80% correlation between math and verbal and a 75% correlation between verbal and matrices and so on. And if you remember one of those old math class diagrams from college or grad school, I mean, the idea is that there's one thing above all those things that everything correlates like 0.73% with. The idea is how you measure this theoretical concept. And my understanding is that in practice, you're going to measure it by comparing 
the results of another simpler test like digit span to the test you just looked at or by comparing correlations among sections of the test you looked at. And again, the question for me is sort of utility. Like a, a crude but real example might be this. G might be the maximum level of physical fitness that someone could get to with their body type. Um, so you could say that if you keep running and playing basketball and boxing, you are going to, there's going to be an upper limit or a cap for your body that can't necessarily change. So what you'd be saying is that the scores that people are getting on reading, mathematics, so on exams today are increasing, but gee, their maximum level of potential may not be increasing. I actually think that's a pretty good analogy, that people are getting better, getting more fit mentally, but the maximum level of fitness for, say, an Irishman or a Black American might not be increasing. The question, though, is almost sort of what the hell difference does that make? If it turns out there are some tiny genetic baseline differences between groups, which, by the way, we can probably fix with genetic engineering in 15 years anyway. I don't think you'll sir, I don't think you'll see people wearing glasses or you know any of this in another generation or two. But mm -hmm. if those tiny differences exist, but we've got, say, Irish Americans, Italian Americans and black Americans to the point where they get the exact same reading test score. Does it matter that there may be a potential down the road difference in the ultimate reading test score they could get if those groups all gave up their social life and read for eight hours a day? I don't really think that's a relevant question. Um, I find that in, when I've debated this, and I've debated this pretty formally against people like Jared Taylor, when I make my argument, generally I'll get you know 20 points or whatever the debater score is put up and the opponent will say, well, that's true. And then they'll say, but gee, and I kind of wonder about that. That's essentially where I end my G analysis. But to me, like if, if a black guy has a 1400 SAT and a white guy has a 1400 SAT, the odds of them both being a good executive at the same level are very high. Like as a dork, I mean, probability approaches unity. Like the idea that there might be a difference in potential between them, you, you'd have to come up with a better definition of that measure for me probably to take that especially seriously. But G is potential general intelligence. The, the, the point that I was making, though, at the Flynn effect, though, is that there, whether or not humans can perfect ourselves or whatever, these, these almost philosophical questions you get into with genetics and with deep psychology, the reality is that the actual IQ test scores, which I think is what most people mean by IQ or by intelligence, these change dramatically all the time. And I mean, the, the example I usually give actually is from the OG Thomas Sowell, but he looks at Irish American IQs. And th this is not something that's contested or this debated. This is like page 63 of Race and Culture, 1993. I mean, he finds that if you look at the Army Alpha basic test you did during World War I and I believe World War II, or the major civilian tests that were done at the time, a whole bunch of white groups, um, Irishmen, I believe Italians, Slovenes, most Eastern Europeans, scored between 75 and 80, basically below black Americans. Today, most of those groups score at least 95. They're at about the average for white Americans. And, Sorry, can I pause you? Maybe you, yeah. don't, you don't know, but was this below black Americans at the time or not the time. when you say below? Okay. Yeah, the black American IQ at the time would have tested as about 85, probably, if you're talking about 1940 or something like that. And these these immigrant groups would have tested below the black IQ. And again, you can say something like, well, perhaps they weren't very good at reading in a second language and perhaps diet held them back. But that's a culturalist point, like how well you know how to read, what you're eating, how fit you are, how, the time your parents spend with you. All that obviously affects your score on these tests. 
But I mean, for Irish Americans, as I've mentioned, the score went from, let's say, 80 being charitable to 102 today. And that's before you adjust for the Flynn effect, which is this 18 point global leap in IQ. So it's entirely possible that the tested IQ for an entire major race, a nationality of people, increased by 40 points in reality within 100 years. And we see this over and over again. One of the reasons I bother to make this point is that when people do IQ testing in Africa, or for that matter in Eastern Europe because of our wars with the Russians, they often border on racism, if not cross that border. You'll say things like entire countries have an average IQ of 60. And it's just sort of like, well, you gave a math test to a bunch of kids sitting in Tanganyika or in Chechnya. You know, how often do in a farming community, how often do these people go to school? How often is school available? You know, how many tests have this kind of people taken before? And there's an obvious reality here without droning on too much about IQ where the more you do any skill, the more you do sprints as a track man, or the more you do algebra problems if you're prepping for the math SAT, the better you're going to do on the thing being tested. So IQ and all these other things, they're not set for life. They're fairly fluid measures of where humans are at a given time to me. Hmm. So I, I, I don't, I want people to research this more. And I think that people are going to be racist or not. I don't really think focusing on IQ really changes that, which is something that I don't think people get. It's like everybody's afraid of IQ tests, but it's like, I don't think it changes whether or not people are racist or not. I think they're going to be like that anyway. That's, that's what I think. If they're going to be like that, like you can find whatever reason you want to, to um, possibly demean a group of people. Um, people don't need IQ tests <laughs> to be like that. But um, I also think that, okay, so I think that people can be arrogant about whatever information they find, and that's what I think. So I think that human knowledge is limited. Um, so we always think we know as much as there is to know, and then there's there's more, but we'll never actually know how much we know of the total. Like we just we can never know that. Like like that's why we have universities, and they they go deep into like some specific field of knowledge to expand that field of knowledge and. We don't know what we don't know, basically, is what I'm trying to say. So whenever I hear people talk about this stuff, um, one, I, it's like, yes, first of all, let people research more because you're like mad at what they found now, but you don't know what they're going to find out if you just let them research more. But then also, don't be so arrogant about what you find out now because there might be more that you don't realize is coming. So that, that's just like one thing that I think when it comes to these topics and then I, I just wanted to say I don't know the answer uh, to to these questions but I have um, I guess what I, I forget what I was trying to say I, I wanted to I forget it I forget what I was, what I was gonna say it was just something in response to the last thing you said but we can move on I guess from oh I remember now so it was about IQ and age so I remember hearing somewhere I don't remember where um, when I first started looking into these these topics, that your IQ doesn't change over time, but you're saying that it does. So I, I guess that's what I, I wanted to, to ask about because I remember hearing, I, I mean, it's kind of silly if I can't say where I heard it from, but 
It may have been <laughs> actually. We were talking about this before the show started. Um, no, 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 before before that. But you're well, saying your, your IQ does change, but I'm saying that I thought it didn't. Well, I mean, of, of course your IQ to some extent changes. I mean, now, so just at the most basic level, my IQ, and again, these are fairly solid tests. Like, you can go online and take the Mensa boards. These are probably not the best IQ tests available in the world, but they're quite good, and it's not hard to find them. My IQ, based on a series of tests like this, when I was in school in the hood, was 106. When I went to an elite law school, it was 160-something, and now it's about 143. That's literally from the test I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So I think that we reify these concepts. Like, the idea of G does have some value if we're thinking of it in the sense that I think we arrived at, which is sort of maximal potential mental fitness for an individual general intelligence. But, I mean, you could say the same thing about physical body fitness. There's a bench press maximum that an ordinary human male, me, for example, or female, could arrive at. But that, for most people, would probably be something on the order of 500 pounds. I mean, depending on what kind of chemicals you're putting in your body, what kind of fruit you're eating all day. Most people are nowhere near that. So within the, within the range that is possible for you, obviously, IQ can change. That's the whole point of test prep classes. Um, tests like the GRE, the good mental tests we use to get you into a solid college, correlate about 80% with your IQ score. But you can boost your GRE score by 100 to 200 points by taking a prep test for the GRE. And it's not just you taking that year's GRE, which would be highly illegal. It's you learning the skills that go on the test. So, for example, um, a great amount of what's on an IQ test is what's called matrices. You move shapes around. Uh, gaming actually helps you with that. There's a correlation between video gaming, according to the book, Everything Bad is Good for You, and about a 50-point jump in your standardized test scores. That doesn't surprise me at all. All you're doing is going into rooms with certain specified threats and taking them out, collecting things. You're literally prepping for that kind of matrix training. Um, I mean, another skill that you're going to see on the SAT or on an IQ test other than the Ravens is basically algebra. You know, or geometry, sine, cosine, tangent, where do you put this? So the more you do geometry and algebra problems, the more you remember basic things like what a chi-squared is, the more your score on an IQ or SAT exam is going to increase. Um, I mean, I, I don't really think that's controversial. I think that if you spent a week taking IQ tests, you'd have a higher score at the end than you'd have at the beginning. And that would probably stick with you for at least a couple of years. The whole... and. The whole area here actually is a bit interesting because a lot of things are consistent with genetic or culturalist paradigms. So if you take rich white kids, poor white kids, and black kids, you find that at a young age, they have very, very similar IQs. Dickens and Flynn, when they did this, found that the IQ for like eight-year-olds, these weren't toddlers, was 98 or 99 for whites and 95.5 for black kids. Um, but later on, the white IQ stayed pretty stable or dropped by maybe a point. But if, by the time you got to 17 or something like that, the black IQ had fallen to, as I recall, 92. And later on in life, when you retested some of these African-Americans as older people, especially older males, it had fallen to 85 or 86. So a common argument from sort of Bo's side of the fence is, well, there must be something genetic that's going on here. Um, you know... IQ must stabilize as people age. There must be a genetic factor. Perhaps African-Americans mature more rapidly. Black people mature more rapidly. To me, it seems like a much more obvious explanation is that 
everyone's IQ is pretty similar when you're in the early grades of school, when you all do the exact same stuff. And as you move into higher educational grades, where there's a little more tracking, you can pick your own spare time activities and so on, you see a little gap emerge. But as you put people into adult life where you do whatever the hell you want, some people are going to continue reading and studying and playing chess and the things you have to do in high school, and other people aren't. And you're going to see those gaps develop. And I, I guarantee you that if you took certain habits, like how often do you read, and you set up a well-done Stata model with IQ as the dependent variable and all that stuff in it, along with race, that stuff would predict far more than race or being from the South or something like that. So there's a culturalist and a genetic explanation there, with the genetic explanation being, well, maybe something changes. And the culturalist explanation being people behave in different ways later in life that they learn from their parents. Yeah, I, I think this the argument about it's IQ stabilizing as people get older is what I was trying to think of that I had heard in terms of IQ staying the same, but I think it was a, the stabilizing um, theory. Um, and you mentioned something there that uh, I just wanted to touch on, which is, is this, this also applies to a lot of what you see in the media, um, which is that in terms of explaining what might be causing IQ, you could look at many other things um, than race or genes that you like in terms of like what you're studying and like I, it's true people don't really like if you're never even thinking thinking to ask those questions and maybe people have asked it I don't know um I don't really think so actually then you're never gonna think you're never gonna possibly find another answer so if you're only looking at one specific variable and not I don't know parents being around or how much people are reading as you said maybe even physical fitness i don't know maybe that correlates with, with iq but then you're, you're never gonna gonna find out and that that is something that I, i've seen you um mention a lot i think that's good and i think it also applies to a lot of the the uh, the cultural not culture the culture the culture wars um in terms of blaming everything on on race it's the same thing if you're only looking at one one variable that being race to explain usually some negative outcome then well you're missing you're missing almost the entire world really <laughs> yeah no you just hit on something very deep there actually this is a problem for us in social science that i've only begun really spelling out in these terms in the past couple of months but there there tend to be two paradigms that people fall back on one is the old school almost racist paradigm which is in the literal sense which is this is genes this must be genetic. If we find that this happens more in X country than Y country, genetics must be the reason. This is the sort of Arthur Jensen on IQ. Like if you find the average black IQ is 90, the average white IQ is 100, the reason must be genetics. A reverse paradigm that really grew up in the 1960s to argue with the boys I just described is the idea that everything's due to racism. This is what you could call critical theory. If you find the 100 to 90 gap, the reason must be that black people are deprived of access to, you know, whatever. Black people are oppressed. You know, you've read books. This is very common. Um, and I think there are pretty substantial problems with both of these. I mean, if you look at the genetic argument, okay, why do kids in charter schools score 200 points more highly on the major testing boards than identical race kids in non-charter schools? Why do West African kids do as well as whites while black Americans don't? I mean, that's, that's two strikes right there. If you look at the oppression-based uh, argument, again, those same two arguments uh, come up against that. But you also have some other questions, like why do upper middle class black kids do badly in school? 
So what I would do, along with Tom Saltz, some other people, Coleman Hughes, is propose a very obvious third explanation, which I guess you could use that broad label of culturalism for. We used that word earlier. But groups that differ in terms of something as important as race and sex tend to differ in terms of a bunch of other characteristics as well. And we went through some of these. Like the average black guy is 15, 20 years younger than the average white guy. The average black guy lives in the South, which has that traditional warrior culture and poorer schools. You know, the average black guy studies less. So rather than hypothesizing about genes and racism, a very valid question is just, what would happen if you took that African-American individual and you put them in the North with the same study culture as the Caucasian guy and parents of the same age? And I think when you do look at that, when you do isolate out children of, for example, married black families with X number of books in the home, you find pretty much the same outcomes that you do for whites. Um, as I've mentioned, West Indians, just as a group, do about as well as Caucasians do. It's harder to get blacker than someone from Jamaica or Nigeria. You know, I mean, come on. It, it's just that's not what it is. Those successful immigrants have a different culture than working class Americans, either black or white. You would find that working class white Americans would be more similar to working class black Americans than either would be to Jamaican business people. So the reality is that there's this complex, I would say, multivariate reality in a lot of things. You need to put eight or nine things in a model or in a really well thought out long qual book. And you need to look at that stuff. Just just pointing at someone and saying, well, you know how the white boys do or whatever. I mean, which is basically what the race paradigm is, is, is not very effective. Yeah, um, I just want to point out um Jamaica is 90% black from the last time I looked at it, but it, it, the term Jamaican also en encompasses all the other racial groups outside of black, but 90% is really high. So I just, just saying. Um, um, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you kind of went through a lot of it. Are there any particular examples of narratives that you see currently, um, like the past year? that you see data being manipulated uh, that maybe you've talked about or you want to comment on? I think that there are a bunch of these narratives that have very little basis in reality. I mean, the, the one I began my books with is um, you know, epidemic police violence, then we move to epidemic interracial crime, Barry Glasner style upper middle class fears, uh, systemic racism itself when you just adjust for things like age and residency privilege for different groups, all the alt-right stuff as well. Um, diverse societies can't work together. How do you define diversity? I think we're about to see more uh, sort of fictional narratives. I mean, I, I'd say that one thing Joe Biden is going to do, and I, I don't hate Biden on every point, but I think one thing he's going to do is invoke this boogeyman of kind of white nationalist terrorism to justify a whole bunch of things from a hate speech law to... Um, oh, my God. <laughs> Probably gun confiscation. So, oh my God! Don't don't say these things. I'm not. I'm <laughs> being, knock on wood. Um. So, but at any rate, you know, I think that that's going to be something. That's going to be something that we're seeing more and more. I so I guess getting to the point, like one big narrative I think we'll see in the near future is the plasticity of language. So we're now at a level where 1984 is more possible than it ever was before. 
because everything's online now. So if you can, quote unquote, hack even at the level I can, much less if you're a computer programmer that's running a website, you can go into the dictionary and change the meaning of the term racism and then change the setting so it looks like that's been the meaning for a while. And we've seen this with a lot of different terms. I mean, I don't want to be crude with this one, but like sexual rape is one of them as a male on a college campus. Where, I mean, like the definition most schools are using is sort of like had sex after four drinks on a good second date. Like that as a guy would be something that could land you in serious trouble. I don't believe the same is true necessarily if you're a woman. But I mean, when you look at studies that find this terrible percentage of women have been recently assaulted, not in their entire life, you find that the question that's being asked is generally something like, have you ever had sex you didn't enthusiastically want? And I don't want to make jokes, but I mean, almost everyone, male or female, could say that. You know, I'm, I'm in a relationship. I used to get home from work. You know, it's is that the definition you're using or are you using the traditional uh, definition, perhaps more real? The same thing with racism. Racism has been something we've seen utterly redefined in recent years. Um, racism generally has meant genetic dislike of another group. Like you think blacks are inferior or whites are devils, and so you don't like blacks or whites. That That's what it has always meant. Now, we've over the past 30 years, we've seen it change meaning four or five times. I mean, the first redefinition was just, well, racism is the old definition plus power. So you can only be racist if you're white, because racism doesn't just mean hating people of another race. It means hating them and having power. And now, as more and more blacks and Asians have moved into the upper class, I think you started seeing this when the president was black. Now, the new definition from Ibram Kendi and so forth is racism is any system that produces any gap in racial performance, which is wild because that's everything. <laughs> you know, the Olympic sprint trials in a typical year are going to involve a lot of black people. You know, the over in the swimming pool, you're going to have a lot of whites, specifically from northern Europe. Um, the National Spelling Bee has been won by Indian Americans for 10 years running. So you can now say, especially if these disadvantages hurt POC relative to whites, you can now say almost everything is racially biased, and that's sneaking its way into dictionaries. So I think you're going to see a lot of this. Violence is another one. There are attempts yeah. to redefine, coming from that law school background, to redefine crimes like assault or battery so that there can be verbal equivalents. You're hearing things like verbal abuse. And I'm sure there are people, you know, classic hen-pecking wives or shouting husbands that really are verbally abusive. But just saying, you know, saying MF or, or something like that, an ethnic term on the basketball court is now the crime of verbal abuse. That is a dramatic, dramatic change in how we've perceived this. So violence, racism, assault. Um, and I think that this whole idea of white nationalism is going to be one of these things under uh, Uncle Joe, where like the term itself is almost meaningless. It seems to just mean angry conservative. Like, if you look at the guys who set up the uh, D.C. march, I mean, I think it was one of them was the Proud Boy leader. Stuff, or the, I guess that's different from the, the D.C. march in particular. Well, no, I mean, I, I, it was, yeah, it was, I think two of the three guys responsible were technically speaking black. One was Ali, whatever his last name yeah, was. Yeah, he just stopped the, stopped the steel guy. I think it's really strange that he just, nobody's talking about that. Because I saw, because I follow him. I met him, actually, at a Sarnovich event a couple years ago. And I've been following him since then. I mean, we didn't talk. I just, like, saw him and said hi. But, um, so I saw when he, like, literally started the tweets to, like, start the movement. Like, I saw, like, the very first thing. And it, it seems like the media just, like, 
I mean, the mainstream media is it's like this is not important at all. So it doesn't matter at all that a lot of people were following this this person. He's <laughs> like white supremacist people. Like it doesn't matter. This is what I mean by 1984, though. Like whatever you might think of Stop the Steal. And by the way, I think that as a political scientist, there's probably half of one percent voter fraud in every election concentrated in urban areas. Trump should have prepared for that. His freaking out after the election narrow loss and saying things like I won by millions of votes. I pretty silly. I mean, he that definitely cost the republic. That's the reason Biden's in power to some extent. I mean, the Republicans had two races in Georgia that were predicted as 80,000 vote wins before Trump started saying things like, can you even trust that your vote will be counted? So all of this could have waited a couple of months, could have waited for the autobiography, in my opinion. But that doesn't change the fact that even if you think someone's politics are a bit misguided, Stop the Steal is a very ethnically diverse movement that was initiated in large part by this guy, who I'd consider a black guy. So why isn't that talked about in the media? Well, because it doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative is that they're all Nazis, right? So if you point out that the march was 10% black and you had Bryson Gray walking around with his AR-15 and you had the founders, Enrique Tarrio from the Proud Boys was there, and he's actually almost a political prisoner in DC. They grabbed him immediately. But I mean, you know, that is not that he's a political prisoner because he's a great political hero, but he's, I, I think a lot of those guys are gonna be in jail for a while, you know? So, the at any rate, I think that the reality of this is a complex march along political lines where two of the three or four primary leaders were black men, that doesn't fit the narrative, so it's just memory halt. Because if you trot out the leader and you say, here's a black guy that we're going to hit with 15 years inside, you can't also simultaneously say, look at these neo-Nazis. Because you have to ask the question, why were they following this black dude? It's, it's, it's strange. It feels strange. <laughs> um, so there's one more thing I, I wanted to, to ask you about, and that's you mentioning earlier that you, I think you said you studied radicalism and insurgency. And like, what do you, how do you think that applies to today um, in terms of censorship? Because in my mind, censorship makes that stuff worse. Um, so I'm wondering like what, what you, what you think about that? I haven't, I don't know if that's true. That's just my thinking. No, I tend to agree. I mean, I think that the art, so the argument for censorship is that worse people may see something, but there won't be as many of them. So like we've over the past couple of years, we've seen people almost totally, if you're an internet kid, which I suspect you are, as I am, deplatformed, unpersoned. Like I used to follow Milo Yiannopoulos just to argue with him. But I mean, like, yeah, obviously a troll, but also a guy who is the tech editor for Breitbart, not an idiot. I mean, commentary on five or six platforms every day. And he was the first person to really be unpersoned, unless you're talking about the hard alt-right by Twitter, where they shut down the Et Nero uh, account and hashtag, and he was gone. And then that same day, unless I'm mistaken, YouTube, Facebook, all the other players did this, you know, with no evidence of collusion whatsoever, as in the Donald Trump situation where they, and they got rid of Donald Trump, the president of the United States. And it's not just like it was Twitter that did it and he's still active on a few other platforms. Like my partner was at the gym and she told me that Trump is banned from Peloton. Like if you're on your exercise bike, you can't, there's phrases you can't type into the screen like stop the steal. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my Trump, God, I didn't know that. This is really wow. true. Like Google Trump Peloton. 
but they're afraid. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but like they they're bad words that you can't type in on Peloton. Apparently, yeah. She she said this, and I definitely know like it, like if Melania had an account on the bike service, it's apparently gone. Like I don't I didn't see this myself. I don't want to exaggerate the extent of it. But if you just Google the platforms that ban Trump, it's like TikTok, Twitch. Pinterest, like in case he wanted to post a fire chicken soup recipe, like he's been completely removed. And this is a power that now exists. So, I mean, that that's the argument for censorship, that you can totally get rid of someone and fewer people will follow them. The counterpoint, though, is if you know anything about the Internet, I mean, there are entire browsers like the Russian Yandex that turn up, let's say, very different results for pretty much anything than Google does. Um, there are entire platforms like 8Coon. Hell, for that matter, Pirate Bay is back up if you want any sort of information or content. Books are uploaded on there now. I mean, but 8Coon is the obvious 4chan, but all the other chans. I mean, it's not especially hard, The you know, the deep dot reddits that keep coming and going. The entire dark net using that prefix. It's not especially hard to find people that think like you if you have fringe ideas. If you're on Twitter and you're an alt-right type, you're also going to find a whole bunch of black culturalists and hoteps and alt-light people and just regular trolls and funny SJWs that are going to argue with you. If you are on 8Coon, all you're going to be surrounded by are other people with Pepe the Frog and Groiper the Toad avatars, and you're going to get that to a much worse zone. Like 8chan at one point allegedly had a live mass shooter thread. Like where people were talking about what would be the best places to target to quote unquote remove kebabs. And I think that that's something that on any other platform would never be tolerated. Uh, so that that's the risk of censorship. And I've already given the benefit. I think censorship will produce far more radicals. More to the point also, I think it'll produce a world where people don't talk much. So like, I mean, there are millions of people on 8chan and 4chan. Like this isn't just a few isolated pervs. And yeah, there are some nuts on there, but also I think by this point, if you're a young right-wing man, you might have an entire ecosystem of yourself, like the Donald.win, 8Coon, 4chan, Reddit, Parler, if it comes back, Gab is over a million. So you would never have to interact with your left-wing ex-girlfriend or friends on Twitter, you know, and that, that entire space, you know, Facebook. And there are now sort of just woke platforms like Twitch at this point where people alternate between sex videos and endorsing Joe Biden. You know, like it's just all of that. Those people, OnlyFans. I mean, the people that are on OnlyFans are the people that are on the Donald.win who might make a happy couple in an earlier era of society. But those, those two groups are not going to encounter each other very much. And so you get weird discourses on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um... That's that's what I've been thinking. I just want to specify, is this something that you've discovered or is this an opinion that's based on research you've done? I'm guessing it is, but I do want to specify that. The, uh, the idea that um, radicalization increases following censorship? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's quite a lot of evidence of that, actually, that uh, it's not my research individually. But I mean, if you look at a good counterterrorism textbook, one of the things that I think a lot of a lot of quote unquote normies don't understand how much of the Internet there is. I mean, if you just download Tor, the browser, you can access every site on the dark net. 
And some of those, like the old Hidden Wiki or Silk Road back in the day or the major drug empire market today, are probably in the top 30 sites on the Internet in terms of traffic. So all that is out there once you drop the veil, basically. Um, and, you know, the same thing with the Chans, the same thing with the Coons, by which I mean the websites, of course. You know, the same thing with, you know, all of the massive sites on Reddit. And, like, Reddit is pretty normie, but when you actually look at some of the disputes they have, like, I remember at one point there was a debate about whether they should kick off r slash gender critical or r slash rape kink. And it was kind of like, wow, both those exist, huh? I mean, there, there's an entire world where you can lose yourself and find similar people. Even, even just 4chan B hasn't gone anywhere. It's cleaned up maybe 5%. So I think that it's not, the, the reality is that it's not going to be very difficult for a motivated nutcase to find other motivated nutcases. What censorship does is that it makes normies less likely to follow you. But if you are, say, Milo on Telegram, that's not necessarily a good thing for society because that means you have an entirely radicalized smart male base. You know, that might always have been the majority of your followers, but now it's all of them. You know, and that that's not good for anybody. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's the... Um, wait, there's one more thing I have written down that I didn't ask you about, but I saw you mention, um, which was, is it okay, like, time-wise to ask? Um, the 1619 Project. Um, could you explain what that is and then also give your, give your uh, opinion? The 169, well, I'm a member of the 1776 Unites Initiative, which is kind of the black business and social science community, or at least part of its response to 1619. But the 1619 Project itself is an initiative from the New York Times that is focused on defining the founding event in American history as slavery, essentially. So the 1619 Project, uh, founded by lead author Nicole Hannah-Jones, they've got some fairly solid journalists and historians on there. Although I don't think their lineup really matches 1776s with Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, me, you know, Carol Swain, so on down the line. But I mean, at any rate, a bunch of solid academics claim that Slavery is the root of everything in society, basically. The Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery, um, primarily, they say. You know, virtually everything unique in the USA came out of slavery. The source of America's wealth was slavery. And a lot of this is extraordinarily dubious. Um, I don't overlook slavery at all, but I think a more accurate, honest approach would be to say, well, when virtually every country in the world had slaves, the USA also had slaves. And those slaves were brutalized and made up eight or nine percent of the population. It was very similar to slavery in other states. But to attribute the writing of the Constitution or something like that to slavery, much less later phenomena like Irish immigration, you know, the Mexican presence in the U.S. culture, it, that doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, I think that's basically the response. I mean, the in terms of the wealth argument, I find that especially weak, having done a fair amount of re reading, at least in political economy. the At the time of the Civil War, the South was by far the poorest region of the USA because they insisted on relying on this sort of feudal peon agriculture, um, which is what slavery is. Uh, so Tom Soles pointed out that at the time of the Civil War, 90% of the skilled manufacturing jobs in the USA were located in the North. Um, you know, the majority of the factories, the powder mills, this is why we won the war, by the way, you know, the armaments industry, all of that was in the North. 
the average income in the South was half that of the North. So, I mean, the simple reality is that had we not had slavery, had the southern states operated under mercantile rules like the northern states, the USA would be a richer country today, probably. None of this takes away from the bravery of the slaves who resisted, often rebelled, you know, wrote the great spirituals and some of the founding U.S. books, so on. But I mean, it's it's silly to say that this practice that existed in our poorest region only until 1865 is what shaped the country as opposed to the space race or Mexican immigration or a hundred other things. All right. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with all my uh, my questions. That that was great. I, I I feel like I learned a lot, and also it was. I feel like I had a good intellectual engagement. So thank you for that. I'm sure that the audience uh, will appreciate it. Before you go, will you let people know where to find you if you want to promote your books or anything like that? Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty easily accessible. If you Google Wilfred Riley, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, college website, so on. So I recommend you do that. Um, I am the author of the books Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, always worth uh, checking out. But yeah, I definitely hope you find me on Twitter, FB, any of those platforms and uh, engage a little bit. I'm more than willing to talk to you. I agree. He does a lot of uh, polls and you get a lot of education just reading his tweets, which is, you know, what a lot of people are on Twitter, for example. But are you on or going to be on any alternative platforms or you're just going to stick to to Twitter with everything going on? <laughs> for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on so many platforms. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, so on down the line, as I've mentioned. I mean, I'm a college prof. I have my own portion of our website and setting up my own website. I don't really feel a need right now to be on, say, Parler or Gab. What I find is that it's pretty much the same people. It'd just be the right-wing portion of my audience. Because in reality, not too many people are getting kicked off Twitter or Facebook. I mean, they tend to censor very big names. So if anything, I might be at a little bit of a risk, but I don't think most of those people I interact with really are. I don't think they're going to come through and you know, shut down every account that has, you know, the feminist fist or the Pepe or whatever as as the profile anytime soon. Probably because that would be half of their business. But um yeah, so I'm I'm not all that wired in, but I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just asking kind of for myself because uh, I think I'm gonna be on Gab and stuff. Okay, so um to my audience, I gotta ask you as I always do, if you like this content, please support it. Just thinking out loud.tv slash support so that I can keep putting it out there. I hope that you have a good day. I hope that you enjoy the conversation and uh, let us know um, in comments, for example, what you think. Bye.